today. We're going to be in 2 John, as I straighten out my notes here. If you'll turn in your Bibles there, 2 John, not John chapter 2. It's a different book. We're going to be in the, the epistle of 2 John. It's uh, near the book of Revelation there at the end of your Bible, if you'll open there. We're going to take a close look at the first century church today in 2 John as we continue in our series through the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And as many of you are still making your way there, I'm just going to tell you a brief story by way of introduction to this second epistle. Um, if, uh, if you know my family, you know that my son, Scott, is, uh, is an actor. He's been an actor for about 17 years now. And um, one of the productions that he was uh, a part of for several years was the television show Seventh Heaven. He, he was actually a regular cast member on there for three years, three seasons. Uh, this was when he was in about middle school. And um, his teacher in middle school at the time thought it would be an interesting thing for, for his class if Scotty would do sort of a day-in-the-life kind of production, bring a video camera to the set and sort of videotape behind the scenes of what it's like. And, and so... Uh, so you, you can't just bring a camera on the set. It, it's, it's kind of frowned upon. It's not cool. So uh, we went to the producers. My wife did. She said, uh, hey, you know, the teacher suggested this, and would you guys be okay if we brought a video camera on the set? And they were fine. They said, you know, that's cool. Bring the video camera, do all that, but don't break the fourth wall. And, uh, and she's, like, she's like, yeah, of course. You know, you, you break two walls, maybe three, but you don't break the fourth wall. What is the fourth wall? We don't have a clue what that means. What does it mean to break the fourth wall? Well, they explain, you know, um, where the camera and the crew all sit, and as you look through the camera, well, you're looking through to the three walls of the set. And, and so from the camera's point of view, looking towards the set, the three walls are the set, and so through the camera, you see a living room. But when you stand on the set and you look back at the fourth wall where the camera and the crew are, well, that's the fourth wall. And so turning the camera and breaking that fourth wall, it breaks the illusion. See, the producers wanted to perpetuate and continue the, 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 the image of the Camden home. When you think of the, 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 the Camdens there, they, they want you to think of them as a real family. Now, of course, they know and everybody understands that it's a television show, that it's not real, but they just don't want a lot of reminders of that. And so they said, hey, you know, you need to protect uh, the fourth wall there. Now, I, I use that story, I tell that story as an illustration by way of introduction to, to this epistle of Second John because, you know, a lot of times, well, when we think of the early church, the church of the first century, uh, many of us only see three walls. We, we have this set, this image, this idea of what the first century church was like. And that's what we choose, this image that we choose to impose on or to see the first century church through. Let me give you a for instance. For, for an example, me, here's the image I have when I think of the first century church. I have sort of a romantic image. I think of Acts chapter 2, the disciples all gathering together, having fellowship, everything in common, sharing the, the, you know, their goods and possessions with everyone as each, anybody has need. It says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and prayer, fellowship, breaking bread from house to house, you know, partaking of communion. This is, this is a beautiful picture. And it says that the Lord added daily 
to the church such as should be saved. So there's this, there's this cool picture of just, you know, fellowship and fun and life and growth and health. And when I think of the early church, that's what I think of. But as you continue to read through the, the book of Acts, you get to about Acts chapter 5. There's Ananias and Sapphira. It says they sold a, a possession uh, and they kept back part of the proceeds of this sale for themselves, which is cool. It was theirs. They could have done with it whatever they wanted. But the portion that they did give, they lied and they made everybody believe, oh, look at how good and generous we are. We're giving all of the proceeds from the sale of this thing. You know, this is, this is our offering. And they kind of take the cue from Barnabas, who a couple chapters back had done the same thing. He sold a, a parcel of land, and he gave all the proceeds to the apostles. And you can imagine that the people in the church, it was this pure, honest offering, and people were like, wow, what an awesome thing that you know, Barnabas had done there. And so Ananias and Sapphira picking up on that, they're wanting to uh, you know, get a little glory for themselves, and so uh, they keep a little bit back, and oh, we gave everything. Peter shows up. He's like, why'd you lie to the Holy Spirit? Why'd you lie to men, you hypocrites? And he they strikes them both dead. Drop dead right there, you know? It kind of puts an end to the romantic image, you know, that you might have of the first century church. But this is what this first century church is. And you know, that's what makes the Bible, by the way, so reliable because it paints the picture, paints the story warts and all, right, as we read through it. And what I love about the epistles in the New Testament is that they break the fourth wall. They let you right in behind the scenes. They allow you to see what's really going on inside in the first century church. And, and most importantly, they allow us to see how did the apostles handle it. And that's the area that's good for you and me, that's just gold, because there's two kinds of experience that we can have. We can have the experience in our Christian walk, the experience of the the road of hard knocks, or you can learn from other people's hard knocks, other people's experience. So I want to break the fourth wall. I want to go behind the scenes. I want to see what happened in the first century church. You see, as we read the epistles, this is exactly what happens. Now, the the name epistle, it's, it's just another name for letter. And that's what the epistles are. The New Testament is filled with letters from the disciples to churches as well as to individuals. Starts there in the book of Romans, goes all the way through these epistles to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John here to on to the, through the book of Jude. We have these letters from the disciples to churches and individuals addressing particular issues. And again, as you read through the epistles, it doesn't take long before you realize and the first century church was jacked up. They were just a bunch of blowits. There's no difference between the first century church and the 21st century church. I mean, the epistles, as you read them, you see, well, people are getting drunk and they're mistreating one another. Church members are falling into sexual sin. Church leaders are hypocrites. There's fake evangelists going around. They're scamming the people. They got the big hair and the television show. And there they are. And you're like... Wow, they're going after people's wallets back in the first century church too. And you see all of these things. Sometimes the epistles read like a regular soap opera. And so as we come now to 2 John, the curtain opens up, the fourth wall is broken, and now we see John's dealing with something else, another issue he's dealing with false teachers bringing false doctrine into the church. 2 John beginning in verse 1, the elder. To the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, 
And not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. It's a promise from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Now, this is written by the Apostle John. He's the Apostle of love. We know him as the Apostle of love, but he's also the Apostle of truth. John uses this word truth 37 times in his New Testament writings. And what we see here in 2 John, he uses them five times in the first four verses. So this is going to be an important theme in our message today. We continue. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. And we received commandment from the father, or as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. John's making reference here, and we went through this in First John, the book of the epistle of First John, that, uh, you know, hey, look, this isn't anything new. This is something we've had for a long time, this commandment to love. Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment in the law? And he said, well, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he gave the guy a freebie. He said, the second, if you want to know the second most important commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these two commandments hinge all the law and the prophets. In other words, all 66 books of your Bible collectively are summed up in those two commandments. Love God, love others. And so this is what John is reiterating here. He says, hey, you know, this, this is, uh, uh, I plead with you, not as though I wrote a new commandment, but one which we've had the beginning that we love one another. Verse six, this is love. John continues that we walk according to his commandments. This continued practice, this walking, this, this, this habitual lifestyle, this is love. Not a profession of faith, but an exercise of faith, day in and day out. This is the commandment uh, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. We're talking about faithfulness. We prayed with Charles today, laying hands on him, just that he's been a faithful servant. That's what we all hope to hear, to hear collectively when we would stand before the Lord. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so this is the idea. You should walk in it faithfully. Verse 7. Here's the problem. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, he's talking specifically about this, this heretical teaching of Gnosticism. We don't have time to get into it exhaustively, but, but a general rough picture of it is that the Gnostics taught uh, that all flesh was evil. And so depending on which sect of Gnosticism you were following, there were extreme sects and there were uh, more liberal sects. The extreme sect of Gnosticism taught that, hey, all flesh is evil and so you have to, you have to, to mutilate the flesh. And so they were into the cutting and mutilating and, you know, and so on and so forth. Well, then you had the liberal sect of Gnosticism, which said, because all flesh is evil, doesn't matter what you do with your body. You can, you know, live licentiously because it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is spirit. And as you might imagine, that was a very popular doctrine at the time. And so this is, this is the idea here. Well, part of that is because they thought all flesh was evil. They reasoned that, well, Jesus could not have come in the flesh 
because flesh is evil. And so they argued that it was what appeared as Jesus was, was a spirit. It was an emanation. It was something that, that emanated from God, but it really wasn't the, the, the physical Jesus. And of course, they denied that Jesus would be returning physically uh, as he promised. And so as you might imagine, that's a heretical teaching. And this is what John is talking about. So verse 8, he says, look to yourselves, always good advice. Hey, pay, pay attention to your P's and Q's. Look to yourselves uh, that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Hey, continue walking in the faith. That's what he's saying. Verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Verse 12, 12, having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. All righty. We're going to touch on uh, three things this morning in our text. There, uh, there's a lot to see here, but we're going to touch on the author of Second John, his audience, and his agenda. Those are the three things we're going to be looking at today. And, and let me just say this. Um, if you've been coming for any length of time, you know that we try and encourage as many of you as possible to get plugged into a midweek fellowship. We believe that's where the real growth dynamics are going to happen in your life. So we say, get plugged into a home fellowship. That's where you're going to meet other couples. It's where you're going to put down deep roots. It's where you're going to grow. That's my testimony. That's when I had a radical transformation in my Christian life and actually putting feet on my faith. It, it was when I got involved in a midweek study. So that's, that's our plug. That's our hope. That's our encouragement for every single one of you. As you're considering midweek studies, several of the midweek studies that we have are ones that we title uh, Sermon Exploration. I'm not entirely satisfied with the name because it's not a good enough description, but it's the best one we've come up with, so that's what we call it for now. Sermon Exploration is basically this. When I put together a text, like today, we're going through 2 John, um, a very small percentage of the the material that, that we go through, that I study, do we have time to, to do justice to on Sunday morning? Some of the stuff we just don't even touch. There is a lot of stuff in here. And so every week what we do in the sermon exploration, home Bible says we get people together and we go through the text uh, more in depth. And it's not go, so much going over the stuff that we covered on Sunday. It's going over the stuff that we never touched on because there's a lot in here. With that preamble and that caveat, I'll simply tell you this. Today's teaching is going to barely skim the surface of what we're going to see here, what's available here in 2 John. And so for those of you that are involved in the, the, the midweek uh, sermon exploration studies, we're going to dig in a whole lot deeper. And if you're interested in that, you can talk to Pastor Cody at those, the growth group table and we'll get you set up. But, but, uh, but just know that as a preamble, we're just going to lightly touch on several issues here today. And we're going to be all over the place. I'm going to jump back and forth from verses to verses just to get these ideas, but all right. Author, audience, and agenda. First thing I want you to notice is the audience. I want you to take note that this is written to a person, to an individual person. John is writing to the elect lady. Uh, Now, the reason that he uses this title, elect lady, and not, you know, her her specific, 
specific name, her particular name, it's debated. Some people say, well, the reason he does is because it's not to a particular person. He's writing to a church, the Church of the Elect Lady, which kind of sounds a lot like a Catholic church I used to attend when I was a kid, but that's not, that's not the point. Some people say, oh, it's a church that he's writing to. Others people argue, no, he's writing to an individual, and the reason he doesn't use her name is because there was a lot of persecution happening in the church at this time, and so one of the reasonable explanations is he just calls her the elect lady in case this falls into the wrong hands. Uh, she won't be killed for you know, being you know, named in particular. Now, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, indeed, this is written to a particular person, and I'm not going to go deep on this, but just to prove my point, here's the idea that the nouns and pronouns that are used in uh, verse 1, verse 4, verse 5, um, they are, they're singular in their tense. And so that suggests that this is written to an individual and not to a church collectively. Uh, for instance, when he, he says, the elect lady, that word lady, that noun, uh, it's in the singular text. Her, that pronoun uh, used right after that, it's in the singular text. Uh, verse 4, some of your children, that your pronoun, that's in the singular uh, tense. Um, the lady in verse 5, and now I plead with you, lady. That's the singular verb tense, or uh, noun, uh, the singular tense, that noun, so... Uh, pronoun. Uh, and so the idea here is that he's writing to an individual. You're like, cool, okay, he's writing to an individual. Big, big deal, what's that mean to me? It means huge things. Here's the deal. How amazing is God, really, how amazing is it that God would inspire John to write a book of the Bible to one person? One person. You know, sometimes you look at your life and you think, I don't know if I matter. I don't know if I'm important. I don't think I'm that significant. There's billions of people on, on planet Earth. And where am I in the scheme of all that? Uh, you know, the, the physicist, uh, Hawking, who struggles with this. He's like, you know, just man is insignificant blip on the, the cosmic scale. What makes him think that God would be mindful of him? He actually said that. And we have the same attitude. I'm not important. Why would God be concerned with me? And it is a great mystery, but the truth of it is that God is concerned about each and every one of us. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19 that the solid foundation of God stands having this seal, that the Lord knows those who are his. And Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. You see, the Bible says that God knows each of our names, that he knows every day of our life, that he is an attentive and watchful God. The Bible says that God is very much concerned about you and me, and he's so concerned, guys, that he speaks very directly to a woman and her children. He's so concerned that he would take the time to write just to them. And the truth is, is that God speaks to each one of us individually today. Let me illustrate this with a story. Our family, there's a, there's a gal, friends with my daughter. Her name's Miranda. Some of you know her. Um, Miranda's been in and out of my, of my family's life for many, many years. They were friends in school growing up. School growing up and, um, you know, uh, Miranda is kind of like, if you've seen um, the movie Forrest Gump, 
uh, Miranda is, uh, she's, she's Jenny, basically, in our lives, you know, just sort of blows in and blows out. You get the picture. And uh, a while back, Miranda went through a, a huge time, a huge trial. She, she found herself pregnant outside of marriage. And she was under a lot of pressure from, from her friends and family to abort the baby. So much so that that pregnancy almost ended at a Planned Parenthood clinic where three hours of full court press, satanic persecution took place. She went in there. She's thinking maybe she's going to get the, the, the abortion. And, and they're in and they're pushing and the Holy Spirit there. And we had been talking to her saying, don't, don't, do not abort that baby. We will support you. Do whatever it takes. And she's going back and forth. And... Um, she left the Planned Parenthood clinic. She did not go through with the abortion. She made the decision to keep her baby, but it was still, she's struggling with an immense doubt, immense fear. You can imagine she's forsaken by most of her family, uh, which included since she was working for family, they fired her. Now she's unemployed. And so we move Miranda into to our house uh, for a period of time. Uh, she ends up uh, moving in with the Mahoney family in our, in our uh, church, and they take her in. And, and so, but again, here's this little gal. She's all alone. She's isolated. She's going through this, the greatest trial of her life, doubt, fear, where are you, God, kind of thing. Well, they go away on uh, the women's retreat uh, at the Hot Springs, and, and they're there on the retreat, and, um, you know, the, the girls at their retreat, they have this thing called a soap giveaway where all the girls are going to buy soap. Dudes would never do this, let me just say. I mean, we, I, I don't know. Thank God I go to the men's retreat. But, but you chicks, you love it, man. So, you know, you buy soap for each other. And, and so, but here's the thing. You can buy soap. They buy all these little decorative soaps. And, and they decide, you know, what we want you to do as you buy the soap, we want you to prayerfully... Att- Attach a card to the soap with a scripture verse. And we just, whatever, however the Lord leads you, you put that scripture verse on that. And so they put all of these soaps in a big bag. And so Miranda's there, filled with doubt, fear, anxiety. God, you got to speak to me. She, she did whatever. We're going through the soap thing. She reaches in the bag. She pulls one out randomly, not even looking. She can't even see. And she pulls out a soap. And on the tag, it's listed there, Psalm 139. Verses 13 and 14. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen for you of Miranda. This is Miranda and her maternity shots. That's the the tag that she's holding there that she got on this soap. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14 says this. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God speaks to his people. He writes his word specifically for us. God spoke to Miranda that day. And some of you are here this morning, and you need to hear that. That God listens to your prayers. He listens to the cry of your heart. He hears and is attentive to the cry of your heart. The psalmist said, God will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. The first point of application in our text, guys, that God God speaks to us individually. He writes his word for us 
individually. And he'll speak to you if you'll listen to him. And the next thing I want you to notice, not just the, the recipient there of, of, uh, of this, this epistle, the audience of this epistle, I want you to notice the author of this epistle. See, because not only does God speak to us through his word, he speaks to us through his people. And we have the author here at the beginning. It's just listed the elder. That's all it says. We know this, the elder, to be the apostle John. And this, this word elder, it is a, it's used inter- interchangeably for uh, referring to somebody's age as well as referring to an office. Uh, in regards to age, when you use the word elder in regards to age, it simply means older or aged one. When we use it in regards to office, elder refers to those who lead churches. The Bible uses the word pastor, elder, bishop, interchangeably, all this same word. And in John's case, it means both. When he says the elder, he means I am the one who holds the office as the pastor, as the elder, as the bishop of this church. But it also means that I am an older one. I am an aged one. Uh, scholars estimate John was somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 years old when, when he wrote this. And if you're taking notes, the second point of application today for you is simply this. Listen to your elders. Listen to your elders. The, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about this. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there's no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Proverbs fifteen twenty two says, Without counsel, counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they're established. Proverbs 24, 6 tells us, Without counsel, plans go awry. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Uh, Proverbs 24, I'm sorry, Proverbs 24, 6 says, For by wise counsel you will wage your own war, and in a multitude of counselors there is safety. There's wisdom in wise counsel. With that in mind, turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. And as you're making your way there, I'll just sort of fill you in on the story that's taking place. We read about here in 1 Kings, Kings, the story of Rehoboam, who succeeded his father Solomon as the ruler of Israel, but he inherited a divided kingdom. God had allowed the kingdom to be split, and there's ten tribes of Israel that are led by Jeroboam, and there are two tribes of Judah led by Rehoboam. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, we find Jeroboam and all of Israel ready to receive Rehoboam as their king. And to unify the kingdom once again. They're ready to do this. But they said to Rehoboam as they go to meet with him. They're basically, they're contingent upon. They're saying, hey wait, this is conditional. Your father put a heavy yoke on us. But if you'll lighten up. That paraphrase mine. If you'll lighten up, we'll serve you. This is basically what, they're, what they say to him. And so we pick up the story in, in 1 Kings 12 beginning in verse 6. They've said this to him, hey, you need to lighten up. And then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Wise counsel. 
But, verse 8, he rejected the advice which the elders had given him, and he consulted with the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, what advice do you give? How should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, lighten the yoke which your father put upon us? And then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, thus you should speak to the people who have spoken to you, saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it uh, lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. And so Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had directed, saying, come back to me the third day. And then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given to him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. Uh, My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. And so the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now, When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. And so Israel departed to their tents. Here's the the picture. Rehoboam was given good, wise counsel by the elders that had given counsel to his father Solomon. And he had received that wise counsel from them, but he rejected the counsel. And instead, he listened to the counsel of the young men who had grown up with him. Now, why did he reject the wise counsel? And why did he receive the very unwise counsel of the young men who had grown up with him? Because simply the trouble with good advice is it usually interferes with your plans. Trouble with good advice is it usually interferes with your plan. See, the wise counsel that he got from the elders was not what he wanted to hear. And how many times are we guilty of that? Really, seriously, think about that. Here you are, you're, you're, you're making a financial decision. Young man, you know, you, you young leader of family, and, and you call your dad up maybe and you're like, hey dad, I found this car, it's really sweet. I'm thinking I'll buy it for you. You think I should buy it? And your dad's like, Don't do it, son. That's a big mistake. Your car's paid for. It's got lots of miles left in it. You know, you're going to buy that car. The the interest rate's too high. You're buying it it at the dealership, and they're going to jack it up. They're going to give you, they're going to lowball you on your trade-in, a car that's already good and paid for. And you didn't want to hear that. You wanted to hear your your dad say, yeah, I think you should buy it. And it doesn't help that you're sitting in the front seat of this car, this one that you want to buy, You know, and they're drawing up the paperwork already and you're smelling that new car smell. You're like, oh, it's like, you know, just you're intoxicated with this idea. And how many times do we do this? It happens in our lives where I want to do this. And the wise counsel that we know is wise, somewhere deep in the recesses of our minds and our hearts, we say, yeah, that's, that's why, but I want this. And so what do we do? 
we find the person that tells us what we want to hear. And we surround ourselves with this, with this posse of people that are going to encourage us to do the thing that we wanted to do already. You see, the thing is, when we don't listen to our elders, it's because their wisdom runs counter to our desires. That's, that's the real truth. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so the idea here is that we, if we are to be wise, we should listen to our elders. We should pay attention to those, strategically seek out those people who are older and wiser than us. Uh, Last week, we had Pastor Don McClure here. And uh, for those of you who are here, you, you saw and you saw me acting like an idiot. I was so nervous in front of Pastor Don. He's like my hero from like, but anyway, 20 years I've been sitting under this guy's teaching. And so now he's in, he's in my church and there he is. And, I'm gonna... and so yeah, I told, as soon as we booked him, I told Shirley, my secretary, I said, pin him down for lunch, man, because I want to go to lunch with him. And so as soon as he got here, as soon as he got me off of hanging on to his ankles, uh, I said to him, look, Don, Um, we're going to lunch today, and let me just warn you ahead of time, I got a lot of questions for you, man. Every time I get the opportunity to to get face-to-face time with with someone like that, it's like, okay, I want to know, you've been in ministry for, you know, 30, 40 years. What what lessons have you learned along the way? What are the biggest lessons you've learned? What mistakes have you made? What, uh, you know, what would you, <laughs> I'll never do that again. Well, what was it? And why wouldn't you? And what do you see that, you know, what, what did you like about what we're doing? What did, you know, I just, I want to ask all these questions because I want to glean from them. I want to know, uh, you know, what, what is it? I had the occasion to ask Chuck Smith at one time, what's your biggest regret? He said, I would have spent more time with my kids. My kids were fairly young at the time. I'm like, okay, check. I can't sacrifice my kids on the altar ministry. Got it. You know, I asked Romaine, his assistant one time, what, what's, what's your greatest regret? What would you do differently? He said, I would have loved people more. Romaine having the, the, the reputation of, you know, he'll kill you as soon as look at you, you know. And, and so I'm like, okay, you would have loved people more. I've got to be more loving. See, I always want to glean from, from people and, and see what I can do. And so the idea, you know, we have to find those people in our life that we're going to do that with. We have Pastor Jim Hesterly here. He, he teaches at our first Wednesday. He's teaching through a series right now through uh, Walk in the Spirit. Jim's been a pastor for years. He's one of those men in my life that I'm like, dude, pour into me, man. You've got wisdom. Like, and by the way, what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge skillfully applied, okay? We got a lot of really smart, dumb people in the world today. They got a lot of education. They got a lot of knowledge but they're dumb as a box of rocks when it comes to applying that knowledge, right? Their life is a train wreck. They're not people you would want to follow. And so you have to find men that are wise. Ladies, you have to find women that are wise. People that you can look to. Who's, who's skillfully applying knowledge in your circles of influence? Now, I put together for you, and we'll put them up on the screen, and uh, we'll leave them up there for, for a little bit so you can write them down. These are a few questions you should ask yourself. Starting question number one, I want you to ask yourself, do I have wise people in my life who I respect to counsel with? Seriously, great question. Are there people in your life that you respect that you counsel with? Do you have those? And if the answer is no, you need to find those people. You need to say, who are those people that, that are wise that I can respect to counsel with? Second question do I consult with them often 
and give them permission to speak into my life. This is really important. Do I consult with them often and do I give them permission to speak into my life? The second part of that question is especially important for you ladies, you gals. I mean, guys, I mean, you come to see me, I'm going to tell you you're an idiot. But girls are a little more diplomatic, you know, and they're a little more careful with each other, right? And, and so what you have to do, if you want somebody to pour into your life, you got to up front tell them, listen, if, if I'm off track, I'm giving you permission to speak into my life. Pastor Cody's wife, Micah, did this with, with my wife, Brenda. She said, listen, you know, my, my mom's missing in action, and, and you're the closest thing I've got to a mother, so I'm going to give you permission to say the hard things to me. And it's not always easy, is it, Micah? It's not always easy to hear the hard things. And somebody says something difficult to you, you're like, I don't like you anymore. But the Bible says that faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's an enemy that multiplies kisses. It's an enemy that tells you, hey, you look great. Things are going good. Yeah. When your life is going to hell in a handbasket, you're like, you want somebody that's going to love you enough to tell you the truth. And so we need to have those people that, hey, do I consult with them often? Do I give them permission to speak into my life? Third question, am I characterized by submitting to wise counsel? Am I characterized by submitting to wise counsel? I had a, a friend recently came to me and he asked me to disciple him. And I said to him, listen, I will disciple you on one condition. He said, what's that? I said, I will disciple you if you'll do what I tell you to do. Because bro, I'm, I've been telling you what to do for three years and you haven't listened to me and you haven't done it. So the only reason, I, the only way I will do it is if you tell me right now, that you're going to listen to me. And so you ask the tough question, am I characterized by submitting to wise counsel or do I, am I just the type of person that's, that asks everybody the question until I get the answer that I want? I'll do that. You go fishing for the one that's going to tell you what you want to do. There's, a, there's an ocean of difference between them. It's been said that wisdom is the reward you get for a lifetime of listening when you would have preferred to talk. And I think that that is wise. I wish I would have said it. I just did. There you go. All right. Uh, moving on. So, so, so we, uh, we go now to, to looking at the agenda. Uh, we looked at the author back in, in 2 John. Now we're going to look at his agenda. As I glance at the clock, I think maybe, just maybe, we can get through this. Um, John's ultimate purpose for this letter uh, is uh, to protect against antichrist deceivers. That's the, the ultimate purpose for his writing this. Uh, he says as much. We, we read through it, verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. But the key to his agenda we find back in verse 3. And he says this in verse 3. It's part of his introduction, and so it's easy to skip over it, but it's really central to this whole idea of what he's trying to convey here. In verse 3, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you. This is a promise. Who's who's it going to be with us from? Well, it's from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. 
All right? Let me read that to you a different way. With the understanding. It's from God the Father, from His Son. Okay? This is where it comes from. Having said that, listen. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you in truth and love. Let me say it in a different way. If you conduct yourself with a right balance in your life between truth and love, if, if there's a balance in your life, I, I hold to truth and I'm loving in that, what will be the reward? Grace, mercy, and peace. This is how it works. This is how it flows. You see, here's why this is important. If we will strike a balance between truth and love, the result will be grace, mercy, and peace. Before John instructs this woman on how to handle these antichrist deceivers, the first thing he focuses on is her personal walk. That's the idea here. He's saying, look, you know, there's going to be a time. You, there's these guys, they got, a, they got a bad agenda, and they're going to come, and you're going to have to refute them, and you're going to have to go toe-to-toe with them, and all these things. But the big idea, which you got to get is to effectively counter false doctrine and antichrist deceivers that we need to look to ourselves. That's what he says in verse 8. Look to yourself. We need to look to ourselves to see that we're maintaining the right balance of truth and love in our life and how we live our life. See, look at verse 4. He says this. He says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive the commandment from the Father. Years ago, I had a gal come to me, and she says to me, she's trying to give me parenting tips, okay? So there she is, she's talking, she's trying to give me parenting tips. Well, her kids are a train wreck. They're little demons. Did, did I say that gently enough? They, they're just little satanic, crazy, you know, this gal's life was a, was a train wreck, man. It was horrible. She's coming to me, wanting to tell me how I should parent my kids, So I politely listen to her, but all the while in my mind, I'm thinking, lady, there's not a snowball's chance in Hades that I'm going to do anything that you tell me to do because it ain't working for you. You know, your life is out of control. Your kids are out of control. You're going to tell me how to parent my kids? I'm sorry. I'm going to find another poster child to look to, to model because it's certainly not you. And here's the point for us. A lot of times, We think, well, you know, I'm the God squad and I'm learning all this stuff and I'm going to tell people all about, you know, how what they're doing is wrong. And meanwhile, our life is out of control. And so Paul starts with, you know what? I'm rejoicing because I see some of your kids are walking right. And so that tells me that you have fruit in your life. It tells me that you're on the right track. It tells me that you practice what you preach. That's what it tells me. And so he starts with that. Then notice in verse 5, he says this. He says, And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I write a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Another, In other words, the big idea here is that, hey, you got no business correcting other people uh, if your doctrine isn't working for you. And so he's saying, look, you got to have this, this approach to where you're loving to one another. You're treating one another in love. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's how we put it all together. If we do all these things, John says the result is grace, mercy, and peace. Okay? So here's what this looks like. You're a person who's striving to, to maintain a balance between truth and love. Okay? I need to be a person who's loving. But I also have to maintain the truth. See, what happens is we will gravitate to one or the other usually. 
usually you've got the person who is so loving that they're just like, oh, praise the Lord, kumbaya, let's all get together, everything's cool, come on in. Or you've got, you know, the, the person on the other extreme who's the God squad who says, you're in sin, you're in sin, you're in sin. Let me tell you where your doctrine's off. And, and so we have a tendency to gravitate to one side or the other. And, and the, the idea here that John is conveying is, look, if you strive to have a balance in your life between maintaining the truth and maintaining love, well, then what, what's going to happen is, first of all, that's going to carry out in how you live your life. You're going to have fruit. People look at you go, hey, look at him. His kids are walking with the Lord. Look at him. He loves. He, he understands that, you know, there's, there, you're supposed to be loving and gracious, and he carries himself in a loving way. But at the same time, he has such an integrity to the truth in his life that when he talks to me and says, bro, I disagree with you here, that, that I'm ready to receive from him. I can receive from him. And again, so what this looks like is, you know, you, you get a Mormon comes knocking on your door. And, you know, you, if you're one of this person who's your way over here on this side, the, the legalistic, though, you're wrong, you open your door, you're like, sell crazy somewhere else, Jack. You slow, close the door on his, on his face. You haven't done anything to help that guy. There's not a lot of love there. But conversely, there's also a problem. The Mormon comes knocking on your door. You open your door. You're like, oh, hey, kumbaya, come on in. You love Jesus. I love Jesus. This is great. You haven't done him any favors there either. See, and by the way, just with that idea in verse 10, it's interesting. We read in verse 10, he says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him. The idea is don't take him in. He says, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. Now, that's the word greet. If you're a note taker, really, this is this kind of an interesting word. Circle it. Uh, next, next by it, you might want to write Matthew 2.10. This is one of the places where this word greet is used. I'll just shorthand tell you the story. In Matthew 2.10, we've got the wise men coming to see Jesus. They've, they've just, you know, given Herod the slip. And now the, 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 the text says, when they saw his star, and then they go and they be, they're able to, to, to come to see the Messiah. When they saw it, it says that they rejoiced. That word rejoice is the exact same word that's used here for greet in verse 10. And here's the idea. Here's what John's trying to convey. That when the Jehovah's Witness comes knocking on your door, when the Mormon comes knocking on your door, when the guy who's trying to lead you to, to a, a, a heretical way comes, if you receive him with this kind of rejoicing, this sort of attitude that says, oh, you love Jesus. I love Jesus. Come on in. We, we're all one big happy family. No, that's, that's error. That's wrong. That's what he's saying. You're not to do that. So what is this balance? What do we do? I'll finish it with this story and we'll be partaking of communion and on our way. As you guys know, we're planting a church in Bountiful, Utah. Uh, and uh, as we were there on our last trip, we met uh, a guy by the name of Paul. And Paul grew up in the Mormon church and uh, he has since converted to faith in Christ. And now walking with the Lord. And he told us this story. He said, when he was on his mission, and he's in, their mission is to, to make converts to, to the Mormon faith. And so he's on his mission. He's going door to door. He said, a, a Christian greeted me. 
And he had, you know, he didn't, you know, I agreed. I met so many Christians who just were, were foul and abrupt and slammed the door in my face and wanted to, to go toe-to-toe with me on doctrine. They had no impact on me. He said, but I met a guy who was willing to, to lovingly bring me along and to, to tell me the truth, but he did so in a loving way. And he said, and I don't know how to explain it except for to say that something that he said, it stuck with me for years. It haunted me. And what he said was this. He said, listen, I need to tell you the truth. And then I want to encourage you, if you shine the light long enough, the truth will become apparent and so will the lies. And so you need to hear the truth and you need to shine the light on everything. The things that you're accepting right now as truth, you need to shine the light on that because if it's not true, the light will expose it. And so he said, the man said that to me and it stuck with me. I I finished my mission. I went home. I was married in the Mormon church, but that haunted me. And so I began and continued just to let the light of Christ shine on the the faith that I was pursuing versus the truths that I was reading in the Gospels. And he said, and I came to the conclusion that what I was following was a lie. And see, guys, the idea is this, that God speaks to us. He speaks to us in that intimate one-on-one, through his word. Hey, I'm writing the word, and it's just for you. And you come to God in his word, and you read, and God speaks to you. God speaks to us through faithful servants who God sends, and they, they minister to us. John the elder, speaking, ministering. And can I tell you that God wants to use you to speak to those that he's going to bring into your path. But without that proper balance between truth and love, he won't be able to speak to them through you. You're either going to be so far on the one extreme that you're going to be watered down and completely ineffective, or you're going to be so far on the other extreme that you're going to blow people out of the water and they'll just write you off before you even start. And some of you have unsafe family members, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so my prayer for you today as we close is that we take a walk with this and we say, Lord, let me be that person that's completely yield to you, that hears you speaking through his word, that receives the counsel that comes from wise sources from other people. And then, Lord, let me be that balance of truth and love in how I live out my life so that, Lord, I can see your kingdom expanded. Amen?